Hi, I'm Stuart Huff. At night, I'm a stand-up comedian, but during the day, I spend my time roaming through junk shops that hopefully smell like mildew. I'm not looking for antiques. No, I'm looking for items that spark my curiosity. And if they're the right price, then they come home with me. This podcast is accurately named Stuart Huff's Obsessive Curiosities. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Stuart Huff's Obsessive Curiosities. Bing, 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 bing. I got it. That was Tom giving me the signal that I actually remembered the title of the podcast. I'm very excited about this episode, man. Yeah, this is right here. This is, I mean, if there's any, there's a lot of stuff that I get excited about when I find in junk shops, all right? But what we're going to talk about today is fairly rare to find and it's not pricey it's not like oh it's valuable it's just this stuff i don't think a lot of people were really into it enough to make it to where when you walk into a junk shop there's a lot around now if i lived in san francisco maybe you find more in that area but what we're talking about now is civil disobedience protesting disruption you know, an attempt to move society forward by group yelling and, you know. The only weapon that works. The only weapon that works. And it's it's rare that you walk into a junk shop and you find stuff. Now, I can find a Kennedy for President poster, and I can find lots of, you know, George Bush stuff. I can find all all that. But for some reason, this stuff's just not around, you know. So, today... We have Tom Simmons with us, one of my favorite comedians, and you should check out his the videos that Tom does. Uh, puts out what's the name of it? It's really sort of nameless, but so then there's this was the original, and it's so I haven't ever renamed it. Uh, there you go. We also have uh, Lowell with us, in which I'm thrilled that you were able to come here. A little Very bit nice of background on Lowell. We're just going to hit a little bit. Ten year Army man is stationed in Italy. Had to change of direction, had to change of uh, plans. You know, you, you you had planned on spending your whole life in the Army, right? Was that That's true? Yeah, you thought. So that was going to be my career. That was going to be your career. It was a perfect fit for you at the time. You felt comfortable. You you felt, uh, you know, that you did the job well. I felt that I had purpose. Yeah. Even though it was imposed from outside. I okay. like the exoskeleton of structure and discipline. Yeah, I craved it and needed it, you, and you, and you and you still feel like it helped, right? Absolutely. Those yeah. things I learned about myself mm-hmm. under those pressure packed circumstances that I wouldn't have learned anywhere else. Right. Give so me an instance necessary. of a pressure packed scenario. Sorry to well yeah. hijack. Officer candidate school graduation rates one in three, and most of the people leave <laughs> for psychological reasons. The pressure is just incredibly wow. intense. Hey, what's the the college rates one in three though? Isn't it? Isn't it about the same in college? That might be for economic reasons or burnout or any number. Or too much partying or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And it may be the same lack of sleep that you suffered in these military (laughs) circumstances. You weren't fed enough. You weren't allowed to get enough rest. And then you were put in artificially stressful situations just to see what you you could handle and what you could tolerate. Wow. So, but, but all of those, all of your stressful military situations were artificial. Absolutely. Really? Well, I mean, that's good, I guess, that you didn't have to, you know. I was at a lucky time between wars, which now there is no between wars. Right. I mean, it's very hard to find anything. I'm old enough that there was a, a peace period, a, a <laughs> right. brief interval of peace. 
Yeah. What was right. that like? It was on neutral because it was immediately post-Vietnam. I went in in 1978. So all of my drill sergeants and all of my leaders when I first went in were Vietnam veterans. So how did you have... To make military a life. At the time, how did you... Like that time, how did you... There wasn't a total loss of faith in the in sort of the well, leadership, but I mean in the leadership in the military at that time. And so, what made you at that time during that sort of ultimate loss of faith to go? I'm going in. It was something that I'd bought into much earlier as an adolescent. the The idea of patriotism, and I'd read. I'd always been a voracious reader, and I like to read war books. Right. And like all young men, I equated war with glory and honor. And there was something, my family's from Appalachia initially. My father's always borne this burden of coming from Appalachia, moves up to Columbus, treated like a second-class citizen, and always felt that, and I think passed that on to me. And I thought from my reading of history that men could change the destiny of their family name that you could elevate your family. Wow. And one of the ways men had done that. Wow, I never thought that ever. Yeah, me either. That's fascinating. And I think yeah. I was bearing my father's burden, carrying his chains like Marley's ghost. These uh-huh. weren't my chains. I never felt that oppression. Right. But he did, and it came out in everything that he did in his life. So I had read, and this is arcane, and I was too young to understand that the world had changed, and Vietnam was one of the main things that had changed it. I'd read about all these gentlemen that had gone to World War II, had become officers in the military, and that immediately elevated their status in society. Right. So my only goal was to become a commissioned officer as quickly as I could. Hmm. And the Army, I knew, was the place I could do it because then they didn't require that you had a college degree. I was one of the last few classes to graduate from OCS where you were not required to have a college degree. Hmm. It limited. It was going to limit my career. I would never have gone beyond the rank of captain because I didn't have a college degree. But I was young. I didn't care about that. I figured I'd get college at any point. Yeah. Did you? I, I, I after I left, I went back to college. After I'd quit. And then you, what? And then in college, you studied what? Uh, history of the early Christian Church. Okay. And and I want you to say this. What? Because you told me this last night off the. We weren't recording, but Lou and I were talking. Why did you? Why were you attracted to the history of the early Christian church? I'd lived in Italy. Of course, the Catholic Church is predominant there, and the just vast wealth. And people believe, various levels of belief, and I didn't understand why I had no sense of belief. And it all seemed just fanciful to me. It, it might as well have been Grimm's fairy tales. Uh-huh. I'm like, well, this is, there's no evidence, there's no proof. What is it that I'm missing that everybody else is seeing? <laughs> That's the line that I like. That's what he said last night. It, it's such a rare person that says, huh, everybody else that is around me seems to believe in, in this, whatever it is, right? And I just don't, am I, am I missing it? I think it's interesting. I better that, get yeah. closer to it and uh, learn more about it to see what they're all seeing that I'm not. The majority of the people that you meet are, they're like, well, everybody believes in this, so they're stupid. And let me not learn anything about that. Let me just sit back and tell them why they're dumb. Lowell said, I seem to be different in this area, and I, I don't think the same as this large group of people. Let me go to college and study it and figure, try to figure out. That's incredible to me. Yeah, is it not? That is, yes. 
Yes. Yeah. Although I, I was sort of chuckling to myself as you described this religion that you didn't understand, the way people have this religion that you don't didn't understand. And every one of the things you listed of the way their minds worked was exactly what you described yourself as in the military. Absolutely. So it was like you had a religion, mm-hmm. and that religion was patriotism and and Absolutely. being in the military and believing that what and then so that was broken, like that cracked, and you were like, oh, there is no God, so to speak, and then you got out of the military. I, I think that's very astute, Tom, because I think a part of what happened is I, I realized that in my mind. What I had had conflated in mind patriotism as being almost religious and a duty, right. I began to see that patriotism is an artificial construct. It doesn't actually exist. It's made up by each culture to mm-hmm. suggest that somehow we're distinct and different than these other cultures. Right. It creates the, the war. Is that we're not. Right. But isn't that yeah. also part, sort of, of built in of in a way, in a smaller sense, into the evolution of of humans like it's not what's well, not really about the individual it was about the clan or the group or the that sort of faction in the in in the wild or wherever we were and it's it was about that group so that that sort of mindset gets built into the evolutionary process of the group the group the group my group because i that's, need to be a part of the tribe or there to be a tribe but really. it becomes so much more dangerous when you take those tendencies right those needs to feel a part of a larger group and extrapolate it out to giant nation states right yeah and also isn't there something to be said that it's artificial construct in nature too it's not real if one group of of you know bonobos is a tribe of bonobos and then there's another neighboring tribe and they war over land and food and and procreation or whatever they made that up too they're all bonobos, right? <laughs> Am I right. totally but competing for resources? Isn't an artificial construct, but all no, through nature, it's, it's, yeah. But they could join forces and create, depending you, on how many resources, how much resources are available. Right. If there's only finite resources and there's only enough for the one tribe, yeah. But then a yeah. Bono, uh, bonobos, they, they're territorial, right? I, well, I know. Uh, What's a bonobo for bonobo. the listeners that don't know? <laughs> I love Tom. Right. Chimpanzees and bonobos, right, are our closest relatives. Bonobos are our closest closest relatives. And oddly enough, bonobos don't really fight that but they have no. sex. They read that same yes, article. They, they what? Right. Bonobos, like chimpanzees will war with neighboring tribes sometimes murder i mean it's from what i've read it's 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 not common but chimpanzees will murder another chimp right bonobos they have sex to work out problems and this is our closest relative i want to i want to start incorporating that into my marriage (laughs) right yeah yeah there's no reason to argue over the dishes right right whoever what does that mean? Like, how do they decide who wins? Well, I think after you're done, it doesn't matter. You, <laughs> right. you everybody wins. Everybody wins, except for the female you, bobos. Well, they right. you know, that's a that's a myth. They enjoy it. Okay. Come on, you know. Yeah. I mean, well, uh, didn't that same article say that the female bonobos climax and they have orgasms? Yes. And, yeah. Yes, and they initiate. And they, they initiate. Sex. They initiate sex. Yes, female bonobos. This is our closest relative. Wait right, now. So, so, what was your dissertation on, by the way? What was the end like to get? What was your thing? We, we, civil disobedience. Okay. That's what we're going to talk about right now. 
Civil disobedience. Boom. Boom. That's brilliant. We have the man and the mind that we need here. Did you know this while you picked civil disobedience? No. Uh, well, uh, yes, I knew that that was his. It was your dissertation. No, it right? was uh, my senior colloquium. So okay, it was yeah. my thesis paper. That I, I think I'm going to say dissertation because I can't say that other right. word. What's colloquium mean for people that don't know? <laughs> <laughs> for the people that don't have a clue. Uh, um, so it's a good thing that Tom and I both have this curious passion, this obsessive passion, this obsessive curiosity. Right. That's the title. Yes. Oh, yeah. Obsessive yeah. curiosities. We have this curiosity about civil disobedience, and we have the man uh, who knows a lot about it here. Now, I have some collection of, of stuff. This Tom pointed this out. This is neon, and it bugs Tom. He doesn't like neon. This is a bumper sticker. It's actually, what do I have? Three of the same bumper sticker. Uh, it says uh, it's a black bumper sticker with orange neon, and it is kind of garish. I'll give it to Tom. I just now. you say you go junkie, and I think of like like the things you've had that just they seem like oh they're pretty rare, and then you're like, and I found these bumper stickers. You're like, <laughs> well, <laughs> but look at it, it's tricky dicky for Vietnam corn. <laughs> I mean, that's great. Uh, Do you have a different appreciation uh, for it now? Yes. That's, that's a that's a solid joke. That is a good joke. It's a good joke. It's it's a form of civil disobedience. It's you are with humor, right? You're breaking down an image of the president of the United States that people have, and they they laugh at this, and they and you and then you think he would make a pretty good corner in yes. Vietnam. He's you know he's killing a lot of people. Drumming up his own. Those are so yeah, like yeah. I saw I saw uh, this isn't really related to that, but I saw a bumper sticker almost as mean, maybe meaner recently yeah. that said. My my uh, my girlfriend's husband fights for your heroin, and it was like a U.S. Army like logo on the uh, bumper sticker. Uh, my yeah. girlfriend's husband uh, <laughs> fights for your heroin. <laughs> like wow, what a what that's like a that's a real slap in the face. Yeah. So these kind of things, I mean, uh, obviously, and you went in. Uh, you you mentioned this. You went into the army right at at the end. It was in between wars, right? But yes, Vietnam sir. was the previous war, right? Yes, sir. So there was a a real that mentality. There, yes, anti Nixon, anti Vietnam, right? Fervor just spread throughout universities, and not, it started in universities, and then spread through the whole country. Right? So, did you have a dislike of of the people that pinko commie hippie? Yes, <laughs> I, I think that in in seventh and eighth grade, I thought Archie Bunker was a a prototype to. Be emulated. You didn't realize that they were making fun of him? You thought he was making fun of them? I I think I was too young to understand the satire involved. Sure, right. I thought, there's a good American. But you weren't alone. There was a lot of people that watched that show. That's one of the genius things about that show. I just realized that. All in the family. I always thought of it as totally mocking Archie, but... Because you're on that side. But everybody else saw it. the, The other people on the other side literally saw it as him making the good points to the stupid liberals. He's teaching the idiot. Oh, my God. My father loved that show, and I love that show, right? How dumb am I that I never got that? It it was a great concept for a show because you could have both groups of people watch the same episode and see it completely different. We're talking about All in the Family, in case you don't remember, where you had this 
this you know icon of the right, this Archie Bunker, who's the cigar smoking. Let me tell you, the Mexicans moved in. We got to move the you know Sammy Davis Jr. He's black, but he's famous. What do I do now? He kissed me. I hate black people. It's the right. whole thing. And then you have the the left is represented. The youth at that time is represented by his daughter and his son-in-law. Right. It's an incredible idea for a show, and I think it's one of the greatest shows ever. And so this civil disobedience, this posters, picketing, protesting, right, this kind of thing on college universities that then spread to cover the whole country, right? It's certainly not everybody, but it, it, but it divided. that You had to take a side. You were Archie or Meathead, you know? I live in North Carolina. I use that line all the time. Like I'm, I feel like I'm a meathead in a state filled with Archie bunkers. Yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah, and people that are old enough laugh. Yes, <laughs> or they dis. Mostly the people that are older, they disagree. You they know just, yeah, they disagree. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's interesting. I would think that 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 at the time the conservatives would have seen themselves as being mocked and hated that show. But you're saying that they didn't. They didn't. They were. That's interesting. That's, such my, my, that's the way I understand it. We, you, you I was know. too young to have a real take on it because I, I think I would have been like in, in seventh or eighth grade. But mm-hmm. I, I remember distinctly writing, you know, those papers you have to write when you're in English in seventh or eighth grade. Mm-hmm. One of I, I think my thesis for that particular paper was what a glorious death it would be to die for your country. Ah. To die for a patriotic cause. Oh, I'm and so... I remember my teacher yeah. being distinctly upset by that and holding me after class and being very disturbed by a 13-year-old asserting that this is a good idea. But again, I think it was about I thought this would be something that would elevate my family name. Right. You know, elevate... Really? You thought see, about your family name as a 13-year-old? distinctly important to me. Wow, that's so distinctly. cool. That, I it think is cool. that's how... Yeah. how oppressed my father felt mm-hmm. he was a straight-a student in eastern kentucky in high school when he went can't come to columbus ohio they automatically put him one grade back they just presumed because he was being educated in eastern kentucky yeah they wasn't very smart right. he didn't talk like that mm-hmm. so he wasn't, didn't sound real smart yeah the southern accent is the dumb one well yeah when you talk talk like that you talk like it right here then, then it's the dumb accent i think that you're real smart yeah, it's one of my favorite things. It's one of the things I, you disarm people with. I, yeah, it's a tool I use, but I interject this right here. Uh, I enjoy, and when I was in Aspen with Tom, Tom was involved in the Aspen Comedy Festival, and, and he invited me to come out. And when I walked out on stage for the big show, it's a big theater in Aspen, right? And I said, hey, how y'all doing? There's a feeling in the room of, oh, God, <laughs> what did we come to see? And there's a nervousness, like, is he going to... You know, you say something inappropriate. Is oh, oh my gosh, I'm here with my mom's best friend. You're right, right. Just from the accent. Yes. I used to get a similar thing when I was living in New York for a little while, and, and I would do sets wherever in the city or on mm-hmm. Long Island, and I would, you know, have like a hey y'all at the beginning or something, and they would laugh. And it would be right. like. Mocking way. Like, they're... wait a minute. You, you guys hear, walk out on the street and there's 14 languages being spoken and y'all is what throws you yeah, the southern accent is the one that you laugh at are yeah. you kidding yeah because so, i love i love not i i i'm one of my disappointments of myself in comedy is that i haven't written more about nonviolence because i just i i ever since i've read about it i've been i just it's somehow one of those things when you're reading about it it just 
touches you like inside where you know it's true. You know mm-hmm. that Martin Luther King's right that nonviolent there's no way to peace without peace. Like you can't get to peace through war. You can't. It doesn't make logical sense. Right. So I know that they're right. And so it, I just I'm really attracted to 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 nonviolence being an, an answer that we need to start embracing. I will and, throw and, this out there and I'm interested if you guys disagree with this because I just I feel I don't know if I'm right about this, but I feel this like what Lowell was saying, like at age 13, the how glorious it would be to die for the for my country. OK. I don't understand that, and that seems off to me. It seems yeah, me too. Like, a, like that, I had a very unusual childhood. No, yeah. but I'm not. I'm not. I'm not, not making, a lot of parenting, and I, I think I was grasping for something external to give it form. Right, and I totally understand that. Right. I understand why you th- you thought that and why you wrote that paper. Right, the reasons behind it, but that's disturbing as hell in retrospect. It's disturbing. Yeah, because. I, I no do, way who I am. I do see this. If you say, okay, we, if, okay, if the three of us in this room, we are the government of this country, okay? And we all believe in nonviolence. We believe in peace, okay? We believe in equality. But we say we are aware intellectually that not all countries feel that. And, and we might, you know, so we need a military to protect. That is a different thing is to, you, you form a military is kind of a, Worst case scenario, that's a totally different thing than I want to die for my country. That seems like two different things. I think they're vastly different. They're vastly different, right? But would you be able to, would you, but that's the thing, that's the thing about like civil disobedience and nonviolence. It's the same. You have to be willing, and ultimately you have to be willing to die. Yes. For that belief and ideal, and they have, yeah, like you said, they have died. And if you're not, then, and people are going to, but that's part of what makes it work. But less people, from my reading through time and in these uprisings that are nonviolent, less people end up dying because because they do it right when. Well, because if you if you used violence, like when people say, "I want my gun," like then it gives the powers that be and the the top of the structure, it opens the door for them to then use violence back on you and to, and to be over the top, you know, like mm-hmm. that's like what they're doing right now with Antifa, right? Like, Oh, they're violent. So then it allows them to be violent back on top. It gives them an excuse. Right. And then that messes up the nonviolent. That's why they always send in agitators into nonviolent movements to yes. start causing yes. violence towards yes. the troops so that they'll react back. But yeah. they, it, it's really powerful in that, they don't have any moral ground to stand on if they start. That's how they lose. They drive over innocent people in the streets and blah, blah, blah. If then, a group of, of protesters, they band together and they make signs and they picket something, right? And they they are unarmed, okay? They have no weapons and they do not disrupt any laws. They don't. They don't uh, agitate anybody, any pedestrians, okay? They are just picketing. That's an innocent group of people. So then when they're, let's say they're picketing a coal mine for better working conditions. Okay. Now when the owner of the mine, this is not good. He's got his employees out here doing this. It's bad. It's bad press. It's all this stuff. Blah, blah. So the owner of the mine now has to somehow try to stop this. The only way you stop it, it seems to me is two options. You put it down with physical force, which now makes you look even worse, right? Bloody Harlan. 
Yeah. yeah. Oh, my gosh. We could get into that. Jeez. Or you negotiate peacefully with the group and listen to their demands. Right. Well. Or you have them arrested for. You somehow you have to remove them. Right. Yeah. You can you can make up some kind of charge and try to get rid of the person, which throughout history. Let's get into some of this junk because we can stop right here and talk about. But it's yeah, like people people tend to we we tend to think of nonviolence as being like, oh, I'm a peace. I'm for peace. And then you're not doing anything. But that's not. Historically, what happens? It's very, it's it's an active force. I can't believe our military doesn't have a nonviolent wing. Like it's a it's a proven powerful weapon of war. Like why is there not a branch that's a nonviolent branch? Like why if we're it's if not we're very tr- profitable, Tom? You don't have to. Die. You don't have to build weapons of nonviolence. Good point, Lowell. That's it, Tom. Is that really the re- like? It's ah, it, that's a good point. I hate to sound so cynical, but. I don't that think that's cynical. I think it's pointing out the. I think that's an extremely. It, it makes answer. it very clear, very clear. What you just said makes it very clear. A group of people, let's say, protesting a coal mine for better working conditions. Let's and you could pick anything. You could pick a racial issue or, or women's right to vote or what's happening right now on the news today while we're recording this is the kids that went through the horrific uh, school shooting in Florida are now taking to the streets in a. Uh, peaceful protest, civil disobedience to try to change a law. So in other words, they have a goal in mind, right? You want better working conditions in a coal mine. You want to change the gun laws. You want women's right to vote. You you want to, uh, you know, black and white people to go to school together. This is a goal in mind. So you are picketing, protesting, you're, you're creating civil disobedience to achieve a goal. War is the goal is money, right? Ultimately. You, yeah, ultimately, it's a profitable enterprise. And if you can sell enough young kids on the idea that there is some kind of glory or honor mm-hmm. in being willing to sacrifice your life. And, and this is the tragedy. If a person loses their life in, in an act of civil disobedience, a horrible tragedy that we all lament uh, as a culture, and every day soldiers are losing their lives, mm-hmm. families are losing their fathers. Or their mothers. Mm-hmm. Children are losing their parents. And we put a flag over it and we all say we care. Mm-hmm. We don't care. We don't remember their names. Mm-hmm. We don't talk about them. It's not news. But it's happening. Yeah. And we're continuing to feed this machine with these children Yep. that, like me as a child, at 18, you're a child. By any definition, I don't care if we say you're legally an adult. Mm-hmm. You're emotionally a child, and particularly if you're male, you're still a child. <laughs> and we're feeding them into this machine that's grinding them into these horrible outcomes. Do you ever do you have do you, when you're when you say stuff like that? Do you sort of filter through like argue with yourself as a younger man? Like the what? Like oh, if I'm you said person. that to yourself, what would yourself? Uh, what would you, how would you react to that? Like. It, it it started to dawn on me early on, when in initial basic training, uh, you're singing songs about killing gooks right. and killing Russians as they start the brainwashing process. But it's not a natural act for one human being to kill another human being. You have to be you have to have your humanity stripped from you and then be rebuilt to kill without having your natural instincts 
stop you at a critical moment. Really? But, well, 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 because, but, but you don't think there's a natural instinct in sort of that coming from a place of, this sounds weird, but coming from a place of love where you would, you don't, you, you don't have defend to, your, it's about like, your humanity. Like you, I have to defend these innocent people around me from this crazy person. So I'm doing the, I'm doing a, I'm make, being a force for good. I don't have to trick myself into killing that let person. Let me say this. To, let me say this to what Tom's saying. Okay. If, if somebody gets killed in the act of civil disobedience, which happens, and we, we, I want to, I want to bring up a couple of examples of that in this episode because there's some amazing people that I don't actually have any. I've never found anything in a junk shop, but they're on my list. Okay, so if someone gets killed in the act of civil dis- disobedience, they joined a cause that they believed in, right, and then they died for that belief. Correct me if I'm wrong. If what Lowell is saying is they were convincing kids to join the military by telling them something that's not true. False pretenses. It's false pretenses. So then, therefore, they are dying for something that we told them, not something that they believed in truly. Right. When's the last time we had a war for freedom? You could maybe make a case that World War II was a case of our freedom was threatened. There was an existential threat. To our democracy and to our freedom. All these other wars. Everyone since then. Everyone since then. Right. There certainly was no threat to our freedom from Iraq. Mm-hmm. Or Vietnam. And we were so mad at Saudi Arabia after 9-11 we attacked Iraq and Afghanistan. Yeah. So mad at mm-hmm. Saudi Arabia, those Saudi Arabians and Egyptians who attacked us. <laughs> of course, they're our allies. Right. So it, 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 am I right in saying this? Like if you if you decide, I believe in this cause, like they're going to try to change the North Carolina voting structure, right, to make it more fair. Okay, let's just say that that's a cause that a group in your town decides to do this because North Carolina is is widely known to be a, a problem. With yeah, it, William right? Barber is doing that. And it's weird because I'm I'm like, I'm for all nonviolent, blah, blah, blah. And then. He's doing it. He's built the Moral Mondays, and they. I got yeah. a buddy that I used to do a podcast with. That's like his videographer and does the. You know, and they're they're doing it. They're accomplishing it. You they're, know what I mean? They're doing it. So let's say. And you, I'm yeah. Let's say you join them, and you're on the front lines, and you're fighting for this belief, this thing that you believe in, right? And then some crazy tries to stop you and runs a car, and, and you die. You died for something you believed in. That's different than dying for something that someone tricked you into thinking. That's the difference we're talking about, right? From our point of view. From right, like there's view. a soldier sitting here listening to this that just is screaming at you Ready right to now. kill me. Yes. Right. Yeah, and, and, you know, my peers, the people I went through officer candidate school with, many went on to become colonels and generals and had entire lives, mm-hmm. you know, in the military. Right. And they wrestle with some of the, 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 the brighter ones wrestle with this. And we talk, I, they're, they're friends of mine on Facebook, and we have these discussions. Mm-hmm. You, you feel like you do it for the people that you're with. Right. Your and immediate surrounding people. You can't people. extrapolate the bigger picture. You, if you, you start have to. The bigger, if you do, then you wind up like me and you leave. Okay. I don't see you how you have can leave. You have to have with... a narrow focus if you're going to continue to do that. Your focus has to be on doing the task, not thinking about the morality of it or rationalizing the morality of it. If you start to open the door to the bigger picture, then you wind up like me saying, this is something I can, my heart isn't in it. 
and you can't do this job if you don't believe you're doing the right thing. Okay, now, did you feel as courageous sort of at making the decision you made to leave and that and and embracing sort of that idea as 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 you would have charging in and jumping on top of a grenade you know yeah, what i mean I like there's any i felt compelled it wasn't courage at all it was just i felt compelled if anything i, I don't know it's pretty courageous to give up on abandoning it's an amazingly to, courageous to, thing to do uh, to give up on everybody that you're surrounded by like everything you've sort of put your life into and then you're like all right i'm all right everybody I think it's all wrong. <laughs> like it's that I'm leaving. That's that's well, everybody like you're close like to, and you know the same thing. Uh, we've had we had those discussions. It's not you have a lot of free time. Right, you're sitting in a tank with other people, four people in a tank, and the discussions are incredibly philosophical, hmm. and some of them incredibly intellectual. Right, people. I think there's a, a belief that. Soldiers are monolithic in their thought, and that everybody—it's just as diverse as as the society. Well, how are they? Wait a minute. How are they? As you said earlier, how are they programming you to think a certain way and, ch- and breaking down your mind, and then still allowing you to, to have a wide variety of intellectual thought? Well, I think there's a, different levels. Uh, there, there's your basic instinct as a human is to protect other humans. That's what they strip from you. Okay. That's what's taken away, so that when the time comes to kill. You can kill. You can pull the trigger. But they don't take your higher order functions. And one of the problems that happens for the military is people mature. You don't stay that 18-year-old kid. Some guys do. We all know civilian guys that are 18-year-old kids when they're 60. But most people will continue the maturation process in their frontal cortex. And the more you read, the more you're exposed to thought, the more you're exposed to philosophy, and to start to understand history not as mostly peaceful with brief intervals of war, but rather a long extended war with brief peace intervals while everybody catches their breath and makes more armaments. Right. You start right. to see that you're just grist for this mill. Do you want to be a part of that? And I made a personal decision. I certainly don't condemn my friends who decided to – have an honorable career. And I think there is something honorable in that they were giving to the people around them. And what they, the fact that they thought what they were doing was honorable is in and of itself honorable. Yeah. You can, uh, we can look at a big picture and say all war is horrible and horrific and, we and leading to the next one and leading to the next one because that's a never ending cycle. And I wouldn't trust any soldier who would say that all war isn't horrific. I wouldn't trust any, the soldiers that I've met and are friends with, they would all say war is horrific, and that you'd have to be a sociopath. You, to you're that. a sociopath if you say, like the, you know, I love war. War is great. What do you? That's ridiculous. If you've ever watched anybody die, yeah. If you've ever watched anybody in, in the throes of death, and particularly after a violent death, how can you not think it horrific? Ugh. I mean, I've never been in a war area, a war zone, or anything like that. But I've seen several people die in front of me. And really? Yeah, on the interstate. You know, there's a wreck. There's a, a bad, and I, you know, you get out of your car and you go. Lowell just had an experience recently, you know, and I, I've seen two people die right there in front of me, and it's horrible. You know, I don't see how I don't see how anybody, any breathing human, would not want to do anything but try real hard to avoid that to try to stop death you know did you 
Well, I did what I could, but there, you know, I ran towards it. You know, that was my attempt. And then luckily, <clears throat> you know, both times that I was around it, one, one, once was in Chattanooga around that big S curve. There's a, a ridiculous, it's literally an S. It's literally like, you know, like when you drive around this country or wherever you live and you come to a curve ahead and it says curve 35 and you're like, all right, 35. That means 55. Yeah, it means right, blah, blah, blah. Right, exactly. No, on this curve, you better pay attention because like you're saying, if you're yeah. just like, nah, whatever, I'll be fine. And that's what happened. And it's a big highway, so you don't really expect it to it's be. It's an interstate, yeah. yes. And it's just an S. I mean, it's crazy. And you better slow down. And the people that don't know that, they go in there doing 55, 60. You're, it, and, and I've seen it happen where I've seen someone go too fast. I slow down because I know they're coming in my lane. You cannot make that turn at that speed. Yes. I mean, you... Yes. Like you can, like I, I remember going through that thing and not paying attention to it and being like, Oh, gee, like, Oh, oh I better like you, next time you, I better. And then next time you don't remember again a little bit yeah. and you're like, Oh yeah. And then like the third time through, you're like, all right. Well, <laughs> I turned that, I turned that Slow corner. Yeah. yeah. I turned that corner on that S curve and there and the wreck had just happened. A dump truck had, I'm assuming the dump truck was the, the guilty party, right? It was going too fast and had crushed this little Corolla and just boom. And there were two people, two men on the interstate, laying on the interstate, a lot of blood. And I, I stopped the car and, and ran towards it. And one guy was breathing and then he wasn't, you know, and it's, you know, just seeing that that's not a war situation where there's just flesh and blood and all, all that stuff. I can't, that should be, Anybody in the military who says I'm for that, I don't trust them. I can't imagine there's too many. There's always going to be sociopaths. But for the most part, I think if anybody abhors <laughs> That's the saddest violence, truth. That's the saddest truth yeah. I've heard of. Well, they usually become leaders and politicians ah, and oligarchs ah, and ah, corporate ah, uh, CEOs. But uh, ah, I, I think most soldiers are have more invested in the concept of peace. And one of the things that I don't think is necessarily – totally wrong is they would sell you on the idea that you were providing for peace, that you were going to be the implement of peace by our strength. We were going to maintain peace. It's only since they've started using this as a for-profit entity. Shouldn't we, if we say as a, as a culture that we want peace or as human beings, we want peace, everybody, we just want to live in peace. Nobody who, who disagrees with that. But we don't even – People who own stock and rate Right, down. but like we say this thing that we, we, we want peace, but we don't even know – we can't even – nobody even – the people don't even know the definition of it. We don't study peace. We don't teach peace. We don't – We don't even have an example Like I, Right, like why? why? How, how do we – that's, a, that's um, obvious that we don't care about it because we don't work towards it. Right, we don't try me, at all. You, you tell me if uh, – which way you want to go? I'm going to bring. No, here's. I've just made an executive decision because my name is in the title of this show. Yeah, there, but you can't. But first of all, you. That's the only part of the title you remember. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so I have to. I'm going to bring this up right now on this episode, but I want to do an entire episode on on what I'm on this item about to mention. But we'll do that later. But there was there was a school called the Highlander Folk School. Okay. Opened in, and now I don't have my notes in front of me, so bear with me here. 1920, okay, this school. During the Civil Rights Movement in the, in the late 40s, early 50s, this school, it was, uh, it was near Chattanooga, okay, Highlander Folk School, okay, 
almost nobody knows about it, right? It started to focus on social issues. And a school started to to focus, teach, and learn nonviolence. It was the only – I might be wrong about this. Right, let, let me put it this way so I know I'm not wrong about this. It was one of the very few places during that time period in the South where it was integrated. It, black and white. Martin Luther King uh, was there for a while. Rosa Parks. Right before Rosa Parks decided not to give up her seat on the Montgomery bus, right? I think it was Montgomery, right? Right before that, she was at the Highlander Folk School. So they try to paint this woman as she was just this old African-American woman who was tired and blah, blah. Not true. That woman knew nonviolence. All right. She knew civil disobedience. She went to the Highlander Folk School that taught civil disobedience, how to change laws through peaceful, nonviolent means. This was a school. Okay, now, so that did exist. It does exist. It did exist. But the government closed it down. What? Like, yes, sir. Like that's what I was going to say earlier about the military. If you study war and you're trying to win war and you're trying to develop weapons, profit fine. But you're ultimately you're trying to win. They, they know point, that. In my opinion, at one point that might have been true. And now I'm on Lowell's side. He knows a lot more than I do. I think now it's become more of a profit. We have to continue it to make the money. Yeah, that's well, obvious. I don't know how you define winning in the kind of wars that we're fighting now. What, what what's winning? Destroying right. a, a a relatively modern culture like Iraq was. I mean, they had running water and electrical grid and you know modern medical care, and now they're in the Stone Age. Is mm-hmm. that winning? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. It, it, it is an easier way when you have a Hitler and a Pearl Harbor. When you have those things, and you say, "Well, if we stop that," but you know what? Then we win. There is the, I, you know, like I say, I. I firmly believe in this stuff, and then I find this thing over here that's the anomaly that I'm like, well, you know, like Japan. They were a crazy warlike culture, and then we totally fucked them up, and now they're the opposite. So maybe that works. Maybe we should go in and totally, I mean, just scare the shit out of everybody to be like, this is what happens in war. We murder and melt your families, and then they're like, okay, we're going to be peaceful from here on out and be a totally different culture. Okay. So my argument against that would be <laughs> – I'm just saying that's – There might be a number. Uh, that's, you know. My argument against that would be this. Let's lower it to a different thing. How you, Are you going to beat the shit out of your kid to teach him a lesson? No, and that's another – like that's where nonviolent uh, – no, 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 no. Well, the other people would argue that you, that would work, but I, I disagree with that. That's another nonviolent thing that – I think ultimately that's probably the best thing for me in my life that of reading nonviolence and everything. It ended up being that I was like, all right, well, I have to – I'm going to use that on my son. I'm going to use – I'm not going to – I'm going to use nonviolence with right. him. And although – even then, I still bully him with like you know with my language and my tone and my and being the the one that makes the decision you know I could mm-hmm. as a little boy it's how's it if I just pick him up and move him somewhere you know what I mean that's so there's different getting, levels I think you're, you're yeah, yeah. That, I, I don't yeah, I think you're getting really detailed but no you're, I would not I, that's there. that's that's how I extrapolate out a lot of things like how would I in a per, my personal life in my personal situation 
what would work best? Would violence work best in this situation or nonviolence? And, it's, and then extrapolate that out to the rest of the world and society. And I think that here's what we have we to try to embrace it all Here, the way down. Here's what, here's what uh, is, in my mind, undeniable, and you can't argue with this. Um, the IWW, Industrial Workers of the World, okay, Socialist Movement, which we talked about before, these people organized. And what I mean by that is you imagine – no cell phones, no fax machines, no computer, no, no, none of that. And they managed door to door, face to face, eyeball to eyeball. They managed to organize millions of people together to picket. And they created a 40 hour work week. They created overtime. They created better working conditions. This is pre Facebook, right? This is pre-Facebook. This is even pre-MySpace. They couldn't even form a Facebook event page for this. There was literally a guy woke up on a horse. <laughs> a guy got on a horse and said, "Okay, today I'm going to go recruiting, you know, for the labor movement." Right? We can't even get. And he rode wage. for an hour and a half through Montana, and he knocked on someone's door and he said, "Are you interested in changing the working conditions?" No. Okay, I got to go talk to another guy. <laughs> Two hours later, I'm going to knock on a door, and they did it, and they they were successful. Not a hundred percent successful. But we got rid of child labor, right? They, they fought against child labor, and they won. They changed the laws. Here, let me introduce another piece of junk. Um, should, they, should they have? I mean, that's, you know. Uh, Tom, don't even to, go down. Tom. <laughs> I kind of like my son to get to work. You know what I'm saying? Let's contribute around here. Uh, Baseball's this, expensive. This is a, a, a <laughs> Mother Jones. This is a woman that should be taught in schools. Mother Jones, Mary Harris uh, Jones was her her name. This is a magazine. Some lefties know this magazine, Mother Jones magazine. Um, but she was a real woman. This is a, it's a, a sign that I found. I have it in a frame that I like. Um, uh, the Little Flags Theater presents the Furies of Mother Jones. Benefit for Red Book. Friday, November 4th at 8 p.m. Saturday, November 5th. So it's a, it's a play that they put on, right, about this woman and her life. And this is a yellow poster advertising the play. It's got a picture of Mother Jones on there. And the, the quote from Mother Jones says, pray for the dead and fight like hell for the living. Mother like Jones, that. 1902. Yeah. This woman, Mother Jones, do you know a lot about Mother Jones? Not at all. Lowell? I know, I know the uh, Mother Jones website and magazine. Right. So. Which is, I recommend it, but I also recommend Googling this woman and learning about her. She was a radical. This woman was a badass. So, and I learned about Mother Jones, never taught that in school, never taught that in college. Uh, Utah Phillips, a folk singer that I just happened to come across in a junk shop, told a story about her on one of his albums. And I was like, oh my God, what an amazing story. And I looked her up and read more about her. And she wrote a biography. I read her biography. She's an incredible woman. She should be taught in all the schools, in elementary schools. You should teach this woman. Here's just one of the, the crazy things she did, wonderful crazy things she did. She just woke up one day and basically said, you know, child labor is bullshit and I'm not going to put it. Not when I'm alive, I'm not putting up with it. She marched 300 kids from Philadelphia to the to upstate New York to the to the lawn of President Theodore Roosevelt's home. She her idea was I'm going to make him look at these kids that are missing limbs and fingers and eyes because they worked in a they worked in a meal. They're seven years old. What kind of a woman makes a seven year old with a missing leg walk three hundred miles? This <laughs> right. is a hero of yours. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, it turns out, I mean, th that was her original plan, okay. and it, it went awry a little bit. <laughs> I think, I think if I remember correctly, when they ended up at president, they made it, but there wasn't three hundred. Okay. Uh, yeah, <laughs> they lost a few. They lost the a few along the way. I think there was twenty <laughs> left or something. Some yeah. were like, "I'd rather work in the mine than hobble for three hundred miles to upstate New York." <laughs> right. You're like the worst stepmother Jones I've ever been around. What but is it's it? it's her her idea was civil disobedience. It's not. Yeah, it's badass to show up on the president's summer house lawn and make him look at the truth. Right. You have kids working in mills and you're doing nothing about it. But it's also good press. She called it the March of the Mill Children. And every newspaper reported on it as they went through her town. Oh, every, yeah. Then all of a sudden, you know, people that really, yeah, they might have been aware that seven-year-olds were working 90 hours a week in a cotton mill somewhere, which is absolutely accurate. That's, I didn't exaggerate those terms. They weren't working 40 hours with overtime. They were working, you know, huge amounts of hours. I can't and, even get my son to do his homework. Right, and making nothing. They, I mean, the, they and were they paid. they pay him. Oh, they paid horribly. You pay your son to do video games. No, I know. <laughs> so that's, that's right. a tool, civil disobedience, publicity. You get it in front of people's face. Her idea was if the average, you know, just uh, average married couple reading the paper sees these kids, you cannot have a heart and say, yeah, I'm for that. Right. That's sort of what, what you know, what they did in the civil rights movement, like you're talking exactly. about. They went, to, they went and sought out Bull Connor and knew it didn't do him any good to go to some liberal sheriff's town when he was like, all right, let him march. They had to go to Bull Connor yeah. and where they would turn hoses on him and blah, blah, blah. And yep. so that it would, people would watch it and be horrified by it. You have to confront evil and make them – make even non-evil people – sort of bring out the evil in them. You got to show there's people. There's some people right now that would be very upset with what I'm about to say, but I want you to think about it and see if you agree with me. The horrible school shootings, right? The one that just happened in Florida. If you had video of bullets hitting the kids. They do. Right? And they were everywhere, right there, on the news. And you were forced to see that. What what happens when a bullet rips through a child, right? Force you to see that. Now go vote on guns. Now yes. go vote. You know, when they unleashed those hoses on the kids, you know, and they showed that on the evening news, people in Montana who don't know any black people don't really, haven't really even thought about you know, integration or what they, it's not part of their world. And then they saw police officers hose down little kids with powerful fire hose water. And these kids knocking their skulls against the thing. Then all of a sudden it started to shift and we started to win when that happened, you know, different society. I, I would suggest that one of the things that has changed is public opinion overwhelmingly is for gun control, mm -hmm. for getting rid of weapons that are designed solely for the purpose of killing people as quickly as possible. Right. Overwhelmingly, no one's representing that opinion in our government. And because, why? I want because you, yeah. of lobbying there you go. and lobbyist and oligarchical interest. Mm -hmm. We are no longer the constituency of our representatives. Right. 
their constituency are the people who can line their pockets. The donor class, basically. The don- and now that Donating money class. is speech, mm-hmm. what an incredible, incredible thing to come out with. What, what, what a finding for our Supreme Court nah. to suggest that money is the same as speech. Yeah. But where's our redress? Where now? How do we take that back? How's there any chance that the same kind of civil disobedience that could alter minds and make people go to the polls and vote differently? Where where's that going to happen now? What do you at least total at, like total at least, people sp- the same way as it's always like universal like strikes. Yeah, universe like shutting down the economy. Basically, it hurts. Uh, it, it hurts all of us, but. You, until you'd like to attack that pocketbook and create that chaos of uh, with the top, they're not going to change any. They're not going to change. But th- th- there's it's not possible to do, in my opinion, through voting or through or through. Uh, violence. Oh my gosh, the system is so entirely rigged now. Yeah. Oh oh, uh, oh. I hope I'm right about this. Emma Goldman, who's another civil disobedience hero. Emma Goldman. Here's a great quote from her. She said, if voting worked, they would make it illegal. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good quote. It's a great that quote. Yeah. Do you have that on a thing from anywhere? Ah, I don't. I have okay. some Emma Goldman stuff, but I don't have that quote. I would love to have that quote on a poster or something. If voting worked, they would make it illegal. It's a great quote. Civil disobedience has worked. You know, it has failed here and there. Yeah, absolutely. There's no question about that. But it's also worked. Laws have been changed in this country. People have been ousted. You know, presidents have been shamed. They've been uh, their evil has been brought to the forefront and shown, you know, it, it's 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 worked. And it's also will be suppressed time and time again. Uh, here's another piece of junk that I found. This is a ten, they call this a 10 inch record. They, they had 78s right with, the, you know, the. The really fragile Victrola, you have to wind the thing up, right? And then when they first started making what we now would call an album, right? They were 10-inch records. Uh, which, you know, the albums that you think of, in, if, you're, you know, if you know what an album is, is, is a 12-inch. This is, so this is a little smaller. This is called The Songs of Joe Hill. That's square. Uh, yeah. Little bitty record. And this is on the Folkways label, which was, a, of course, a folk Hand that to Tom. Uh, is there a booklet inside that? Look in there. Oh, no, there's not even a record. Yeah, I got the record right here. Oh. Um, yeah, so the song, Joe Hill was an IWW guy. He was a, a member of the IWW, and he wrote songs. You know, just the, the protest movements have used songs historically to get people together. Pete Seeger. Pete Seeger, absolutely. Uh, you know, like when you when you have a group of people that are picketing and protesting and the militia brings out the dogs and you start singing, you're, you're not as scared. Now you're together. Now you, you are a unit. And that was the idea is you can, you can overcome. I mean, we shall overcome, you know, you can overcome a group of people singing together as a unit connects them, you know? So, excuse me, Joe Hill was a songwriter, folk songwriter, and he wrote a lot of songs for protest songs and stuff like that. So the state of Utah, I think I'm pretty sure it was Utah. The state of Utah, don't put that back in there. Just tear it up. Yeah. The state of Utah uh, accused him of murder and uh, executed him by firing squad. Joe Hill? Yeah. They they executed him by firing squad. Yeah. 
you know, it, they, it's a trumped up charge that they laid on him that he had he had murdered a, some druggist or something, which didn't happen. But they they get rid of people. You know, sounds like some of the same excuses they police and stuff use now, but they're not using it to take out like a folk, folk singer. They're using it whatever, just a yeah, just a motorist. Here's a great story. Here's another <laughs> civil disobedience. Here's a great story. This William Lewis Moore. I'm pretty sure William Lewis Moore. I'm pretty sure I've got that right. Now, I'm, I don't have notes in front of me, guys, so you, th- those of you that are listening here. So I'm, I'm going by memory. If I get a couple of these details wrong, don't, you know, don't. Is there like a liberal section in these junk stores that you find this stuff? Or? No, this stuff is hard to find. Okay. It's, I, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm assuming this. This is judgmental. I'm assuming it's because I live in the South and I work mainly in the Midwest. So who, you know, Joe Hill was from Utah. He's a lefty. You know, he's one of those radical commie pinko, you know, so not a lot of people, you know, in this area would buy his stuff, I guess. I don't know. Maybe if I went to Seattle, there would be more lefty stuff in junk shops, you know, but I only get to go to Seattle once every five years. And, you know, so I haven't been able to find much. I found this Mother Jones thing. I've got some IWW memorabilia, uh, song books and stuff like that. But I get so excited when I find lefty protest material so i want to tell the story of william lewis moore uh actually born i know born somewhere in the north maybe new baltimore i'm thinking he's a baltimore guy he goes down that's just piece of cardboard that that record goes in yeah uh he he as a child i think he was in alabama or mississippi and mississippi i believe it was with his grandparents a couple years in mississippi so in other words he got a taste of the segregation of the racism of all, and not that Baltimore was this magical heaven, but he saw and lived in Mississippi for a little bit as a child became really, really against racism and, and, and all that stuff. And then grows up fighting that fight in Baltimore. You know, he, I think he was arrested the first time he's a white guy, uh, kind of a loner too. not one of, not a joiner. He wasn't a member of all these organizations and stuff, but there was a movie theater, uh, that was segregated and there was a, a, a line of black kids that decided to protest and picket this. So they were going to the white theater and buying a ticket to see a movie. May you, you they're forcing the cops to arrest them. So then they, it can make the news. Right. And then you can, you know, you can get the water boiling to get people, you know, he got in line with them and, and said, if you take these kids to jail, you take me too, you know? So just unnecessarily forcing himself into a situation to add another body to the, to the thing. He was a postman, right? He was a postman and he walked everywhere. He was against automobiles because they pollute the air, right? This is in the fifties and sixties. He's walking everywhere and he would wear handwritten signs some of them were really funny and he would just like placards around his neck, you know, and he'd be walking and delivering the mail and have an anti-Vietnam sign on. Right. It's crazy. Yeah. He's a government employee. You can't do I mean, that. You can't do that. It's nuts. My favorite sign that I've read about where he had a picture of Jesus. It just said wanted. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. And then he began to write letters, personal handwritten letters to congressmen and senators and everybody. And he would, hand deliver a letter he would walk sometimes for days and hand deliver a letter to some senator explaining why he should join the cause for you know against segregation 
and why African Americans were, were were human beings also and counted. Are these he, letters collectibles, or are they are they not oh, exist? I mean, I, if you found one of these, I mean, I, I I'd you know go nuts. I'm saying, I mean, I wonder if they're like collector things that, or if they may be in a shop somewhere like this. You they, know what I mean? They might be because I. You know, NPR did a story on this guy like eight years ago or something. That, and I found that out from researching it and, and listening to it now. But I, nobody knows this guy, which is crazy. This, So here's the rest of the story. So he wrote a letter to President Kennedy, and he walked from Baltimore and delivered it to the White House. And his handwritten letter to Kennedy. And he didn't get in front of Kennedy, but he hand-delivered it to the White House. And he said, which he seemed to be a real funny guy, he said to them, I'm a postman and I'm here. If you have any letters that you want me to deliver, I can take them with me. <laughs> Which is great. <laughs> so he has so much uh, information in your head. Like, it's, do I? Yes. Like you, yes. What do you mean? Do I got to finish the story okay. first? Cause the ending is horrifically sad and heroic. He decides he's going to walk. He walked from, uh, now I'm not going to remember. He walked from like Tennessee to Mississippi. He, he made this, alone by himself walked along the interstates and the highways. I don't know if the interstates, anyway, he he walked with a placard on against racism, right. And had a handwritten letter that he was going to deliver to the governor of Mississippi, you know, and news found out about it and went, what? There's a dude walking. What? So they run down there. They did a radio interview with him, like while he was walking and he basically said, I'm here, I'm against segregation. And I'm, you know, I'm just, I have this letter I've written to the governor. I'm going to deliver it and blah, blah, blah. So he was found dead in a, in Alabama. So some, what they assume is some Klan members probably heard the radio interview and found him and, and killed him, you know, but there are people all through history. So, that are, so that there are, is such thing as bad press. <laughs> I can't believe I went through all that. <laughs> that was a good four-minute story <laughs> that I was frantically trying to remember as much detail as I could in my head. Before I interrupted you. Because I, I thought, what a, when I read that story of that man, <laughs> I literally put the book down, and I turned the light out in the hotel room, and I stared in the dark and thinking about that man and thinking about the people throughout history that have given their lives and gone through so much trouble to make things better. And I and I I'm not gonna I'm not gonna lie, but I might have shed a tear that night when I found out about that guy, and I thought about him, you know, gave his memory some some good do, you know, right. And then I finished that whole Tom and Tom just punchline. Bam, baby. So there is bad press. <laughs> if you could take Tom Simmons mind and my mind and somehow combine them, you would have a solid C room headline. That would, be, that would be a good, solid, mediocre comic. I have, I don't, yeah. the poignancy of the human condition. There's just, just yeah. a certain, and, McCall's of recent events, and we've discussed this. I, I sometimes think of us as vessels, and that, that the reason we're mortal is because there's only so much sadness the vessel can hold. <laughs> no matter how how long you live, there will be enough events that are sad. Yeah, and you need a punchline every once in a while. Yeah. And there every you once in a while, you need a Tom Simmons. Bam! Yeah. Sometimes there is bad breath. <laughs> That's a pretty good line, right? Come on. That's a damn good punchline. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. It was solid. And I, I hope a third of the people listening to this laughed at it. Right. I hope and the I, other two thirds were like, what an ass. Like they had the expression that you had, like, really, Simmons? <laughs> That's what you got out of that story. Uh, right. 
<laughs> it makes me so happy. It really does. It makes me so happy. You do that to me all the time. And not one time have I ever been irritated or mad. It, because I think I, maybe there's something inside of me that knows that I need to be pulled back. Because I'll go down the well. Like, I'll go down a well of sadness. And I need Simmons to just boom. Just not care. And yeah, just <laughs> you know, just do some horrific punchline that is just yeah. shreds the whole story and brings you back to <laughs> reality. Um, Kilroy, right? Right. You know, give us a short history just of what Kilroy. Is. American soldiers in, in World War II would always put Kilroy is here. Yeah. You know, just a picture, that funny little picture of the guy with the nose and his hands looking over the peering over the wall. Yeah, and was here. have you seen that? Just a little, the little. It's a quick drawing. Right, it's two hands and a and a, and it says Kilroy was here, and it's basically just troops are going through a town, and it's graffiti, right? And yeah, I mean Kilroy was here. Oh, Tom's got his doodle thing out. There it is. Tom is that what that is? It. I didn't Tom, even know that's what that was. That's Kilroy was here. I thought that was a Sticks album. <laughs> it, well, it Sticks did have an album, right? Was it called Kilroy was here? I don't. I think it was definitely Kilroy something. They had a sticks. They had a Kilroy something. Yes, was here to right. subtype thing. Now this little, this has got to be two inches tall. Maybe this little statue I'm holding, I found in a junk shop, and I laughed out loud. Oh, this is some dark humor. This is right up Tom. He Tom's even got a bit about this. And I do. Yeah, and we might just let Tom do his bit because Excellent. it's great. It's a great bit. Well, then I, we should save it for the closer. You, you think no, so? It might be. This little statue, I have no idea. It's. I think it's just plastic, and I. I don't know if it's you know, but it is a little girl. It's just sick. This is dark humor. I have a uh, joke about this. Yeah, this looks like a. Uh, this. I'm almost uncomfortable describing. Wait, <laughs> I have a joke about this. Well, it kind of okay. calm yourself. You, you know, eleven seconds ago, you wanted off of this podcast. <laughs> now you're like, come on, let me do my bit. No, no, you're like, this is just. It makes me uncomfortable, and I'm like, wait a this minute, I have a joke probably, about this. This is a 15 year old girl. <laughs> this is a little girl, and she is clearly it. pregnant. She's got. She's pregnant, uh, and at the bottom it says Kilroy was here. Oh no. <laughs> Oh, that's another anti-war yeah. thing, right? Is she yeah, it's harmless? an anti-war little, uh, you know, what do you, little... an Appalachian chess piece? Oh my god! <laughs> Look, you can see his, you can. See... No, oh, he's coming out. See, climbing oh, out of the wall. Clip Kill that. Roy was there? We're, oh, edit that. Come that's on, more... we're trying to get on NPR with this. That's a good visual. What that's are you a talking great about? Yeah, that's that a good... was. It's a little two-inch tall statue of a pregnant. Uh, I, I guess what well, I don't know what she's supposed to be. She's clearly a soldier. Has you know, yeah, sad. Had a young, met a young girl on the road. Met a young girl on the road and nylons and chocolate bars and. So the, you're insinuating? Oh, I now I know what you mean. It's sort of a it's sort of a a rape joke, like yes. a rape thing. I yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yes. I mean, and yeah, it's funny, is it not, Lowell? It's. It, it's very dark, but it's, it's very, very dark. It's even worse it's than funny. the other than the bumper sticker I talked about earlier. Like that, like is even more like yeah, uh, like, yeah. But it does bring up an issue that has been around uh, in the I know in this country for a long time. Where you know you talk to the Brits, uh, you talk to people from Britain, and that was the thing about the U.S. troops is what they're overfed, overbred, and over here or something like that. 
you know, that here, here come the troops and they're going to take all our women and they're going to, you know, you know, it's funny you say that because when chocolate back- bars and nylon mm-hmm. stockings, right. every war has had this consistently. And now the, you know, the, now it's no longer, you know, now it's in a, in the military, what was it, Tom's bit? There's twenty thousand or something. Twenty six thousand. Twenty six thousand. Twenty six thousand cases of sexual assault. In the last sexual assault, like the last, the last, you know, each year in the military. So I know. was there when they were integrating women, trying to integrate them more into the military. It's not all women, but yes, yeah, it, it, it's a, it, it was a tough culture to change. Yeah, let's put it that way. Right. I mean, you young testosterone men with that specifically have been told they're powerful and important and you know all that you need that feeling to get them to do what needs to be done right and but that doesn't play well when you set them free in a bar in france or whatever (laughs) the navy started integrating ships with Mm -hmm. with women oh was that first the pregnancy rate no it was a little later but the pregnancy rate was amazing i'd read an article and i don't remember the statistics amazingly low or amazingly amazingly high high. amazingly why how would you you would almost they're gonna get a hundred percent i'm going a hundred percent of the (laughs) you're stuck on a ship for six months there's like yeah you're there you're gonna there's gonna be sex happening that's the great that's the thing we do best and there'd be like one woman for every 10 men on the ship you're you're just talking about a powder keg at that yes yes. all of them young i mean all of them average average age probably 20 right. right So there's yes. So you can only imagine. But you know it's interesting you say that about the the sort of it's built in like. But when I when I another another thing I remember from my first trip to Afghanistan in like oh six or oh seven, I was you know I had my Martin Luther King book and I was all the nonviolence guy. But I remember one of the one of the guys the sergeants that was bringing us around and he probably had enough of just me not I'm not going to go I don't want to go shoot at the ranges and I you know I was really what we were talking about earlier about nonviolence and then. He said it was, I was talking about the town, like that you can see when you're running. When I would jog around base, I could see the the village or whatever. And he said, "Yeah, that's at Bagram. That this is an old Russian base." And he was talking about missiles being launched onto the base here and there, and that they don't report them all because they don't really hit things most of the times. Blah blah blah. Because they're just Scud missiles launched from wherever. But he was like, "The we the Russian they used to do that to the Russians. They would launch their missiles up here, and the Russians would go into town and kill a bunch of people and rape the women, right? And they launch those bombs into us, and we go into town and we build a school and get them hospital care, you know. So he he was pointing out that that's you know that mm-hmm. that's not what the American troops are doing. You know, they're not doing that same right. what you're talking about. With I, you know, I want to throw this out there." Because I'm interested, if I'm right or wrong about this, and I, I have no clue, but I'm interested in Lowell's opinion and Tom's opinion about this. I worked on this idea, this thought, for a bit, for the stage, right? And I, uh, oh, it, I, I met resistance from people that, that like me, right? People on my side would, uh, just had this initial, no, you're wrong kind of feel to it. And I kept trying to explain, and it just got to the point where I thought, okay, I'm going to... I'm going to put this aside for a while and and think about it more before I bring it back to the stage, okay? So here's the premise. We're not doing jokes. Here's the premise, the thought, is the government, right? And this all sparked from this article that I read about that uh, the, the official government death toll right now is way low. What, what the government is admitting of killing innocent civilians, Afghanistan, right? 
way low. There is no reporter, no, I mean, Fox News knows it's low, but they will not raise the number. If you just go through the day-to-day reports of nine people were killed in a hospital when a bomb came in, okay, you know, 14 people were killed over here when this happened. If you just add those up, it's higher than what the government is admitting to killing. Right. So the government is lying to us about the number of innocent civilians killed. Right. No way. No way. My thought was this. Thank God they're finally lying. They didn't used to lie. They used to brag about it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, that's not when, funny to people. That, that's, that's what I thought, Tom. <laughs> I was like, how could you not find this funny uh, and true? You think Genghis Khan reduced the number of innocent civilians he killed? Right. He increased it. He said we killed millions and then a reporter said, there was only 100,000 villagers. Right. And he said, fake news. Fake. <laughs> there was a million. I killed the most innocent people ever. I am the king of killing innocent people. Do you think that you know when, when the Huns invaded the Goths in 962 or whenever they did, when the Huns invaded the Goths, do you think they had to answer and lie to a committee? about sexual harassment in the military, they said we raped everybody. Right. Men and women, cows, sheep. We raped every (laughs) single thing. Of course we raped everybody. We won. That's right. We won. I think God actually orders in the in the Twice Old Testament in the Bible. He orders them to go in there and just kill all the innocent people. Yes. And the he actually punishes them for not killing everybody. There's, I think there, yeah, I know a story in the Old Testament. There's twice, two times in the Old Testament that I know of that God specifically tells the people to go in, kill everybody, and rape what's left. They used to brag about that. Now our government is lying to us. That shows progress. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. All right, my friends. I, uh, Civil disobedience, if you're listening and it's not taught in schools, Mother Jones is not taught, you know, Emma Goldman is not taught. The Highlander School is no longer, didn't you? The Highlander School, we're going to do an entire episode on the Highlander School. So tune into that. Is there more than one school or can there be only one? Well, there there can barely be one. Government shut them down, closed them. They've been fighting to stay open for a long time. They're they're open right now. this, This is great. Yeah, so... Uh, recommend you looking into IWW history. It's incredible. You know, Howard Zinn's a good way to get into that, you know, and the Chomsky's a, a next step. But anyway, Gene Sharp, the nonviolent Gene Sharp, stuff. Read uh, some of that. Martin Luther I'm King, gonna, obviously. I'm going to dive into that. Gandhi's, don't read Gandhi's autobiography. He may be the worst writer and that he was really good at the nonviolent, so the protesting <laughs> and the foods and the starvation, whatever you call that. The, right. The, the writing, he's pretty terrible at. But, uh, um, Tolstoy, right? We talked Tolstoy. about they both got it from yeah. Tol- Thoreau. They, yeah, any of the existentialists. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, Thoreau or is transcendentalist. Excuse me. Thoreau was just right. right? He was that, that. That's that book where he just lived in the woods and ate Walden nuts. Palm. We'll talk about squirrels. <laughs> yeah. 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 Which, oh, yeah. which my that's, wife every time I, I, I talk about the merits of Walden Pond point will point out the fact that his family owned a pencil factory, so he was wealthy enough that yes. he could afford to go live yeah. in the woods. And, and it, you know, problem. and that's another thing we could probably do a whole episode on is. 
is it important to like you pick people like Martin Luther King, uh, you know, you know, it wasn't exactly, you know, uh, he wasn't he cheated on his wife. Right. right. OK. Is it important to be honest with our heroes or, or do you want, you know, we could do a whole another episode on that. But one of my favorite things, yeah, I'm not going to listen to Martin Luther King's message because he cheated on his wife. Right. I mean, right? it seems yeah. kind of Benjamin uh, Franklin which, cheated on his wife. I still use electricity. You know what I'm saying? He had good ideas <laughs> in between yeah. being a bad human being. And I, and we have yet to find a perfect one of us. <laughs> That's we have yet to find a perfect one of us. So. Thank you so much for uh, listening to this podcast. Uh, Lowell, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me, Stuart. I fantastic. And Tom, thanks. wonderful as always. And uh, stay tuned for the next episode. This ends so abruptly. Stuart Huff's Obsessive Curiosities is an on-tour production. Matt Holt, producer. Matt Holt also wrote that sentence. If you want to support us, please rate and review us on iTunes. Anything you do is greatly appreciated. You can visit our Facebook page also at Stuart Huff's Obsessive Curiosities. We'll post items of interest there, and you can chit-chat with other obsessives. I even stop by from time to time to see if I can buy anything from anybody. I've been Stuart Huff. If you've liked my obsession as much as I do, thank you very much for listening to me.